0: Issue for all women. Hello there, Hannah here, and welcome to this week's Chops. In it, I'm chatting with journalist, writer, and broadcaster Samira Ahmed, and I will tell you for why. Other than we love her, obviously. This coming Thursday, or on the 6th of October, to save confusion if you're listening to this at a different time, a new exhibition opens at the Science Museum. It's called Science Fiction. Voyage to the Edge of Imagination. And it promises to be an immersive, genre-defying exhibition in which you will embark on a -a once-in-a-lifetime adventure through the cosmos to explore visions of the future through the science of today. That bit was from the museum, not from me. Samira is one of the biggest sci-fi fans we know and has played an advisory role in this new exhibition. So who better to talk to about girl geeks the optimism and the pessimism of sci-fi, and why people who say, I don't like sci-fi, more often than not turn out to actually kind of like sci-fi after all. That's me I'm talking about there, and maybe you too. Either way, there's a lot to enjoy here. Have a nice weekend. Welcome to Standard Issue. One of our favourites and self-confessed sci-fi nerd, Samira Ahmed.
1: Geek, not nerd, the difference. (laughs) Is there?
0: Maybe that's my first question. What's the difference?
1: I think a geek has passion, a nerd is a bit... I'm not going to slag off nerds, but, you know, (laughs) they're not the same.
0: Okay. I think we should maybe start with what... I know it's a very difficult question. I don't think anyone has ever nailed down the answer, what is sci-fi. But I'm going to ask you to have your best go because it's such a massive field and it intersects with adventure, action, horror, romances, got it all. And people tend to say, and I'm a really bad offender for this, that I'll say I don't really like sci-fi. And what that means is I don't really like Star Wars. But I do love dystopia and dystopia is is mostly sci-fi. Science
1: fiction, yeah. So these days people often talk about speculative fiction. I think they talk about the word science, which people feel narrows things down that it's technology obsessed. And that's, that's the problem. Whereas actually, dystopia, if you think about it as speculative fiction, it's imagining what if. Yeah. Then that becomes more useful. I once wrote a piece about how a Christmas Carol was the first time travel story. It's not technically, there's earlier stuff, uh, but it's pretty much. Mm. And, you know, no one thinks of that as science fiction, but it is. You know, it's a man jumping through time back into the past and forward into the future and yeah. changing the future. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm happy to call it science fiction mm. because if you think of science as being about knowledge, which is the origin of the word and investigating and speculating, then again, if ties with speculative fiction. It's what if.
0: Yeah. The interesting thing is about science fiction, some of it's really, really optimistic. A drive forward, progress. This is what could happen and it could all be wonderful. We're all going to be off seeing other planets and everything will be great. And some of it is really, really dark. Maybe we should put the brake on progress. I like the dark stuff. The sheer breadth of that means that there's got to be something for everybody in sci-fi shortly.
1: Yeah what's really interesting is at the start of the first lockdown I by coincidence started reading Octavia E Butler who was this amazing African-American female writer and it turned out loads of other people were reading her too. I don't know what it was and Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talent. Oh, is it Parable of the Talents? I can't remember. But there's two books, and they, they were written in the mid-1990s, 93-ish, the first one came out, when you think it's, you know, Clinton's just become president. One could argue it seems a relatively liberal, progressive time. And yet it's, it's actually imagining a future which America is hugely divided. There's a, a presidential candidate who talks about making America great again. Wow. Racially, the tensions, the violence is horrific. These militias are on the rise. And she kind of nails that anxiety really well. Technically, there's no science in it at all. It's just imagining an America a few years ahead, yeah. where people are living in enclaves. And if you step outside your enclave, you might well never come home, because there's so much violence and people are sort of whole survivalist ethic. And we know in a, in a terrifying way that America is looking a bit closer to that. Yeah. 10 years ago. So I think it's really interesting how relevant science fiction has proved to be. And not just because those of us who grew up in the 70s grew up watching and reading science fiction that was about viruses wiping out or potentially wiping out civilization, Mm -hmm. and the Andromeda strain, the Michael Crichton film. I, I saw in the late 70s, it was made in 1973, and it's all about a virus from space and there's a race against time to find an antidote.
0: I grew up in the 80s where so much stuff was about how we were all going to basically be living in a post nuclear, yeah, you know, well, apocalyptic world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: I, I wonder if it's actually, you know, that's the trouble for my generation. I, I mean, Generation X, which is we were so prepared for nuclear annihilation <laughs> and, and scrabbling out a living amid the cockroaches in the aftermath that perhaps we've been too complacent about these terrible things that have been happening in the world and the kind of erosion of democratic rights and so on. I'm very shocked at how my generation is sort of, has happened. It's almost as if we were waiting because we were prepared to deal with the dystopian aftermath. But actually, we should have been doing more to stop it happening.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, because I spoke to a couple of my, my friend's kids and my nephew. So at the start of this year, you know, Putin, there was a lot of conversations about what if Putin goes nuclear. And I was talking to them about it. And they all still seem to be more concerned about the environment in general than they were about nuclear war, interestingly.
1: I can see why. You know, it is the threat that they've grown up with. And it has that same level of existential power. I mean, in a way, it's worse because it is going to happen unless we take more and more drastic action to avert it. And young people don't yet have the power to, you know, change policies because they're not running things. So I I completely get why there are a lot of young people who can't sleep. They're having terrible anxiety. Mm. And I think that was true with nuclear anxiety for my generation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. We're talking about children. Let's go Mm -hmm. back to childhood. So tell me about what first drew you to sci-fi. The first thing you saw that you thought, yeah, this is my thing.
1: I did watch Andromeda Strain on TV. And I was obsessed with all the layers of it, the way it looked. There was an older female scientist among the group of scientists who were trying to to deal with it. And they, oh. were living, they, they worked their way through the different levels of this lab centre. And I think a lot of for me it was about the architecture of it and the closed world. Space in 1999 was a very big influence on me there. Sylvia and Jerry Anderson show that was, again, dystopian scenario set on a moon that's been held out of Earth orbit with all the people on it. And they're basically floating through space trying to find a planet to live on. They're always being attacked by hostile aliens and, <laughs> and being, you know, it was like a nonstop emergency on that base. And uh, I used to, I've written a thing about this in The Guardian. I, um, I made this elaborate base once on my bedroom floor. I used to love making spaceship bases 2001 space odyssey was also a big influence I used to design these beautiful things that's for my toys using little counters from board games and I made one that was the ultimate one took up my whole bedroom floor and it was part andromeda strain with decontamination chambers it was part space 1999 and it was part 2001 and it was just finished and I went to school and I came back and the whole thing was gone and my mother had decided to clean my room that day and had hoovered it up oh my god and I, I still can't deal with the trauma. And it meant that to this day, when my children were younger, I never touched their elaborate gay I, yeah, I might say, look, you might need to tidy your room a bit, but I completely respected the right mm. to turn your bedroom floor into a science fiction scenario. And interestingly, my daughter, I shouldn't should say she's grown up now, but she had all these smile of ponies. And it turned out she, to, she had she used to make dystopian scenarios for them where they like they survived some kind of apocalypse and
0: you know, <laughs> fighting to
1: the death. <laughs> and I love that she's somehow inherited just just by genetics that instinctive love of the apocalyptic.
0: Yeah. About a year ago, I was shopping and I saw that fairy liquid had. Bought back some of the old school big white bottles. It must oh, yeah. have been an anniversary, and it was like a promotional thing. And I bought one. And when I finished it, I had the overwhelming desire to make something out of it,
1: like a rocket, like a rocket.
0: Because yeah. I can actually remember doing that as a kid. Yeah. And I thought, come on Could... now, you're in your forties, you can't you make know, a I rocket. St- yeah, you see, I
1: still like to buy egg boxes. Yes. And I remember when my children were younger, I kept thinking I should save all these egg boxes because then they could make them into, like they would make perfect lunar landscapes yeah. or little lunar modules. And my children didn't necessarily want them. I was, I was kind of shocked. Yeah. And, and similarly, the trays of biscuits, you know, when you get like a big tin of biscuits yeah. and they come in those little plastic trays. So each of those compartments could have been some kind of science fiction mm. room in a spaceship or a base. Yeah. And my instinct is still to look, what can I repurpose for building... You know, maybe it be like Rod Stewart, you know, in his, his model railways. Maybe <laughs> when I really made it, I'll have a whole room yeah. in which I will reconstruct lovingly all these science fiction sets of films I love. But you know, they had a Stanley Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum a few years ago, and I went to see it, and they reconstructed, you know, some of the room sets from 2001. And there's a particular space station, which is always empty, with lots of lovely empty seats in white, and Leonard Rossiter sitting in a black Nehru jacket in the corner. That, for me, is the epitome of what I love about science fiction. It's... I must admit, I like it clinical. I like it clean. I like the idea of these empty spaces in which you might roam. And, you know, it's something. I I don't find there's something necessarily negative about it. I find there's something thrilling about the clean canvas of it.
0: I always think of that that French and Saunders skit they did of Alien where Dawn French keeps running through corridors and she's holding her boobs down and she's like, I can't keep running through these corridors. Because that to me was what science fiction was, just lots and lots of corridors, like spaceships and the doors. Actually, you know, the like
1: Alien that. films. I only I only saw Aliens, the, the, the sequel, a couple of years ago um, at the BFI. And yeah, there's a whole genre of the kind of more gritty urban warfare kind yeah. of science fiction which I must admit I've watched I've watched Terminator and stuff but I don't love them as much as the ones that have a bit of tech to them yeah It's are the ones I love best
0: I'm going to go back to saving the rappers from Quality Street so you can when you're retired and you make that thing you can make some use of them because that was another mm-hmm. thing I used to do so I was like they they'll work be useful. very well yeah.
1: in 60s style science fiction yeah um, so the other couple of things I should mention is that Star Trek is the other show that I really loved and it it was essentially benign although it dealt with some dark scenarios and I think it's one of the few shows that could be genuinely optimistic on the whole I think Mm. science fiction has worked best when it usually is darker but the other interesting thing about being um, a child in the 70s and early 80s was we read a huge amount of dystopian science fiction in school on the curriculum. I went to first admit I went to a private girls school but we read a lot of John Wyndham, we read the chrysalids which is all about mutation and witch hunting Mm. in a post-apocalyptic world we read the day of the Triffids, we read 1980 Eighty-four. I read Brave New World, mm. and these are books I read. I read all these books by the age of fourteen in school.
0: Wow. So talking yeah. about children, yes. I think part of it is you know part of the thing about science fiction is it's quite scary. And a, a while ago, I was talking to some friends of mine, and we were talking about things we were scared of when we were kids. Now, I was scared of absolutely everything. Everything. I didn't even like the music they used to play in the Castrol GTX advert. I used to find oh, it yeah. too spooky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, don't do it. You're a
1: sensitive soul, aren't
0: you know. Yeah, I'm not. Funnily enough, I'm not now, but I was at the time really, really scared haunting, of it, loads yeah. of stuff. But the two things that came up most in what were you scared? Of, and I'm so I'm 47, so my friends are between you know 10 years either side of me mostly. Okay. And the two things that came up were number one, Jaws, and number two, Daleks. Daleks were really, really hot. And it's preposterous when you look back now. But I can remember being genuinely terrified of it. Do you
1: think Of was, Daleks?
0: Of Daleks, yeah.
1: You're a bit young. I'm less than ten years older than you. And um I Daleks didn't bother me really. Did they not? Maybe it's because I you know, I didn't really watch that much Doctor Who. And um, my doctor was Peter Davidson. and I was a teenager by then. I was about 13 or 14. So, and I have to confess, I slightly fancied him. So I was in that generation, like the <laughs> girls who got into Doctor Who because <laughs> the doctor was slightly hot. <laughs> <laughs> so no one should sneer at wanting a young, hot doctor. Um, but um, no, and, and what was the other one? The Daleks and- A
0: Jaws, that was the other one, which Jaws. was Yeah, no, everyone imaginal. was scared of yeah. Jaws. Yeah. Jaws. Even though, I mean, I can remember going to sleep in my sister's bedroom. When I first saw Jaws, and we started sharing a bedroom when my brother was born, so I'd have been younger than nine. and I went and slept in her bedroom, and I, I slept next to the wall so that when Jaws came in, he would he would eat her first, yeah. <laughs> which is the it most ludicrous thing. Logic. There yeah. is
1: a logic to the child's mind of how you handle these these terrors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I am assuming when you were growing up as a, a young girl or you know a teenage girl into sci-fi, were you? On your own in a, you know, in a group of men, because the impression we've always had, the stereotype is science fiction fans are men.
1: So that's definitely not true. Although I think there's something about the vocal science fiction cohort, you know, whether it's on social media or perhaps on setting up fan sites or fan clubs Mm. in the past you might tend to feel they were more dominated by men and sometimes women would set up their own clubs. I was always a bit of a loner growing up so and like a lot of I think people into you know different genres you know and, and I think a lot of teenagers in general you find a place uh, that you love and it's funny one of my cousins loved reading Star Trek novelizations and and spin-off novels and he has I mean, last time, I, oh, this was years ago, but like in his 30s, he still had shelves and shelves of them. I never read that many. I read one or two. You know, I just think it's really interesting how many people just, it's its a thing that you have on your own. And now social media, to some extent, has enabled people to find each other. So I think there's much more prominence of women in science fiction, and that includes things like cosplay, mm. which is a whole new thing, which I wasn't really aware of. And I had done cosplay once on Celebrity Mastermind, but it wasn't something I would have done if it weren't that I knew I needed to I needed to make a mark because I didn't expect to win. And I thought, at least people remember that Samira gave it a go. <laughs> and I, and I sourced know, a costume from a, from a collector, a Space 1999 collector, because that was my specialist subject on the Champion of Champions edition. I was up against three men, all of whom had won their editions in the past. So all of us were quite high end. And I just thought I probably won't win it. And that's, To my surprise, I actually won quite easily. <laughs> Um, so maybe the costume gave me extra power so I've sort of now I've 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 more understanding of it and I don't think it is just male I do think when things get nasty and we know that in a lot of worlds of serious fandom whether it's Marvel Universe or football or anything you get factions and it can get quite vocal and nasty and Mm. I remember once doing an event with a big panel of Doctor Who and it was when the Bill Potts character had joined Doctor Who. Right. And I was doing that panel discussion with Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi and um, Pell Mackey. And you know, there was someone in the audience who talked about being bullied on forums, Doctor Who fan forums. And, you know, it's a real phenomenon. This was a young, it was a teenage boy. I think that it's just about people can be idiots, whatever they love.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting you say that as well about your friends still having those books because I've, I've got a friend who is really into Doctor Who. In fact, you probably know him, Paul Kirkley. He's written. A yes, I do. I
1: was exchanging emails with him quite recently. <laughs> Were you? He does great interviews. Yeah, I like
0: Paul. He's as a child been like you know. He's written a book about it. Loved Doctor Who. Was really into Doctor Who. It's really tightly tied into his relationship with his dad because that was something they did together. And he's written beautifully about it. But he's a man who's fifty now, and his office is now. The place where all of that stuff lives, all of his Doctor Who memorabilia. A, his wife and is has,
1: it Doctor Who his main thing? Yeah,
0: all his wife's yeah. the stuff his wife's gone, you're not putting that in the
1: lounge, just generally no, no, shifted. No,
0: no, no. So it's when you're in his office, it's like being in a little in a little museum to Doctor Who because he's never gonna get rid of that stuff.
1: I mean, there's something unique about that. I mean, I'm on the editorial review board of Doctor Who magazine. Um, So, I'm just working my way through the last of the last six months issues. so I have to write a report every six months, and they had a whole feature about people who collect the um, the figurines. Mm. And you know, some of these are really expensive, and it's clearly older men who have the money and Mm. the desire, and dare I say, the space to collect this stuff. And I don't believe in a male or female brain, but I do think there's something about certain elements of fandom, especially about the collecting, which does seem to present as being more male.
0: But then do you get to an age where you don't want that stuff anymore, which is, I think, the position he's in? This was stuff that was meant something to him when he was a teenage boy. But, you know, you can't just throw it away, can you? So what do you do with all well, of that stuff? Well, you can auction you it? it
1: and then give the money to charity or yeah, auction something else. you listen to Paul. Yeah, it depends. I mean, I regret throwing it all my old Jackie magazines. I thought i needed to clear them out when i went to university and they were great they're like a time capsule of the early 1980s and you know they wouldn't have taken up that there would have been a stash about that high i'd say magazines unless you really need to they're an easy thing to hold on to
0: yeah my mom not so long ago was sorting out i was probably in lockdown was sorting out her shed and gave me back a box of all my blue peter annuals from when i was little and they oh. were absolutely time capsule I mean, stuff things,
1: they, they sell i mean you know so if you feel you don't have emotional connection to them You know, giving them... Oxfam are are very good now. They'll auction off stuff online that they can tell has collectible value. Same with Ladybird books. And some of the stuff... I mean, I collect all Ladybird books, but I've read them with my children and I keep them to be read. I don't keep them in a glass case and I don't bother about mint first editions with, you know, their dust jackets or anything. So I I think everyone works out for themselves what their priorities are. Yeah. But Doctor Who has a level of fandom that is unmatched because people obsess about finding you know little details about old um spin-off comics even you know it's i sometimes so, well, i remember someone said if only a fraction of that love could have been sprinkled on some of the other long lost programs of television mm, sitcoms yeah. and things because i do feel there's so much other television that is undervalued and is deserving to be preserved
0: Can we talk about Nichelle Nichols, who died recently, and you put a lovely tribute on Twitter to her? I wonder if you could sort of expand on that for us and talk about the impact that she had, both for women in sci-fi and for black women.
1: So Nichelle Nichols played Lieutenant Uhura um, from the very start of um, the classic Star Trek series, and. I always loved her. And I think everyone thinks of her as being one of the core team. Mm. There's this warmth about her. She could sing beautifully. She'd been a nightclub singer, performed with some really big jazz names. And she's just this you could just tell she's this incredibly beautiful, sexy, intelligent, witty woman mm. on screen. There's particularly rapport with Spock. And when J.J. Abrahams rebooted the original series for the films, he created a romance between them. And I remember interviewing him and you know, and thanking him for doing that. And he, you know, he was one of those people who completely got how interesting a character she was. Now, what's interesting is that after the first few episodes, if you read her memoir, Beyond Uhura, which obviously I have done, you know, she starts to disappear from being in the front line. She doesn't beam down to the landing party and go on adventures. So Star Trek, despite seeming to be on the edge and positive and, you know, a, a future that was sort of diverse, mm. actually was restricted by what white male television executives... Yeah at NBC at the time would accept and they didn't like the idea of this black woman being there so she starts to be kept on the bridge and she has a few lines at the start of the episode and then there's some white woman who's a guest star with the ludicrous wig and not very much on who gets to go on the landing party for that episode so I think part of it is my frustration that and this is what Paul Lay the historian said to me it's the tragedy of the true pioneer that they have an impact they influence a lot of people but they themselves didn't necessarily have the career they deserve she's She's done one or two Black exploitation films oh. and obviously the subsequent spin off feature films. But her character, yes, I mean, it cannot be said enough. As Martin Luther King told her, you cannot leave this show when she wanted to leave because it really matters to see you as a strong Black woman, as an equal in this team mm. on this programme at this time. And it was one of the few shows that he let his children watch, he and his wife. And I interviewed her first in about 1995, which is when the first big Star Trek convention was held in the Albert Hall in London. And I did, me and a producer, Stuart Buckman, both huge Star Trek fans, managed to pitch to all the different programmes at the BBC. We did a business angle report for Business Breakfast. We did a World (laughs) Service News report. We did a domestic bulletins report. And it was also pegged to the release of the Generations crossover film with the next generation. And we interviewed Patrick Stewart. We interviewed, and we interviewed Nichelle Nichols and Marina Sirtis. uh, a British actress who played um, Deanna Troy in The Next Generation, together in the basement of Forbidden Planet where they were doing signings. And it was lovely. We did a whole ride-ranging talk. And Nichelle Nichols knew that she'd had a very big social impact. So when Star Trek was on, there's a whole generation of science students at college who were watching that show. It wasn't just children. It was, you know, adults. It yeah. was students. And they went on to careers in places like NASA and with those kind of values. So she kind of became the face of their recruitment program to try and recruit civilian astronauts for the first time for the new space shuttle, which was very much this, I, and I've written feature about it. You know, it was a unisex idea of space travel where men and women would be equals. You'd have a civilian crew and potentially it was your stepping stone to be able to do space exploration. It was like a shuttle craft. And of course, as we know, it hasn't worked out that way. And it's, it's been decommissioned, which is heartbreaking in itself, but she was the face that brought the first black and female astronauts into NASA's program. So her legacy is secure for that reason. Um, And as I say, again, just being a strong black woman is the reason that so many women of colour, including myself, I'm I'm not black, I'm of South Asian heritage, but I still wear hoop earrings because of her. You know, that's how important she is to me. Um, And I met her again only in 2016. And there was a launch event for the Black Star Program at BFI celebrating black on-screen talent. And by that stage, I think she would had some kind of a stroke. So she was a little bit on her feet Mm. and you could tell just occasionally you know there was a a bit of a brain fog but in a weird way you wouldn't know it she was so beautiful and charming and still witty and you know we we did this huge live panel event and I brought I suggested getting more scientists on who'd been influenced by her and I got Kevin Fong who's worked for NASA is an emergency medicine specialist presented BBC shows about space exploration of Mars and Maggie um, Adderin-Pocock, who, of course, is well-known a uh, space scientist as well, both scientists of colour who grew up adoring Star Trek. And, you know, they were all gushing <laughs> with her. And I've got a ph- photograph of us all with her. And my daughter met her too. And that woman's impact in the real world on space travel, as well as making a much-loved science fiction show, in which, I mean, I can tell you about all the episodes. You know, she, <laughs> she never, even, in, even when there's threat and peril, She never gives in. She never does. She's always defiant. She always says no. Um, And I I think that's so significant. Yeah. It was amazing.
0: Can we talk about another landmark female character? Well, actually, not female character, but let's go back to Doctor Who. So Jodie Whittaker's tenure at Doctor Who was significant. I think we can certainly say that. I can't speak to the quality of it because I don't watch Doctor Who, but what I can speak to is the reaction to it, which seems to have been somewhat polarised. Perhaps the group of people that you're talking about who are quite angry and sneery, shouting on the internet about how ridiculous it is to have a female Doctor Who, and another group predominantly of what you would hope people would speak to, young women saying, this is amazing. So mm. I wonder, now she's reaching the end of her tenure, what you think the long-term impact of that will be?
1: You know, it's hard to know. Um, I have to confess, despite the fact that I, I, I sort of dabble on the edges of the Doctor who universe, mm. I haven't watched every episode. I do I do think, a bit like Lieutenant Hura, you don't understand the importance of seeing yourself represented. I also think science fiction in general, but Doctor Who in particular, has always attracted um, a particularly diverse audience so that sense of kind of lgbtq plus representation i mean star trek lo- you know, it still doesn't really have gay characters it certainly didn't right the way through the 90s was, it was really significant the number of people i met at conventions and things who you know were gay people who might have disabilities or be neurodivergent mm. so um i think doctor who also kind of draws that huge range of fans yeah um, which I think is really interesting. There've always been people who've griped as well. It's like people moaning about John Boyega being in Star Wars. You know, racism is just a thing that's always been there. And I remember Fluella Benjamin telling me how, you know, she, she talked to some children writers about the fact that there were no black people in their illustrations. They were, oh, but it's fantasy. And it's like, oh, what? Fantasy doesn't include black people. I mean, literally, that's how people thought. Like, you can't have black people in, in Middle Earth. Why? Yeah, like, I mean, I saw elves.
0: I saw some stuff about... Um, Lord of the Rings, as well with the, uh, Lenny Henry, of yeah. course. Some, um,
1: so and, I mean, I know, try not to ignore ignore that stuff. We've moved yeah. beyond that now. I think I think we have moved beyond. The only other example I'll give is Frozen, and 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 Frozen really annoyed me. The film. I mean, I loathed it when I finally got around to seeing it. Oh yeah, but, like, the only <laughs> characters who were voiced by black voices were the trolls and the magical people. And I remember someone who seemed quite sensible on social media th- telling me how. But it doesn't make sense for us to be black people in this because you know it's it's supposed to be Scandinavian. It's like, well, I don't think it is supposed to be a real Scandinavia. Yeah. I think it's it's like a fantasy world.
0: <laughs> also, I believe there <laughs> are black people in Scandinavia.
1: Yeah, yeah, but also it's just it's a fantasy yeah. world of fairy stories, you know. So anyway, Disney's moved beyond that now, and I was seeing it again with Little Mermaid, there's a bit of a backlash, but I think we have moved beyond. The, the point where we need to worry about what racists think about diversity of every kind yeah. in, in science fiction. Yeah.
0: And, and sexists, I would say. Yeah, agreed. So yeah. can we talk about some other sort of landmark female characters Yeah, while we're on the subject of, of sexism? <laughs> Who else do you stands out as being significant in the, in the world of sci-fi?
1: Well, Sigourney Weaver's Ripley is, and I've interviewed her. And, of course, Ripley was originally written just as a man, and then why couldn't it be a woman? Ridley Scott's work is really interesting because he he does put strong women in his films. G.I. Jane isn't science fiction, but, you know, it's worth watching. It's a really interesting film. Um, And I think her approach to it is really interesting as well. Um, Sigourney Weaver's. She's just got this amazing presence on screen. Oh, I'm trying to think of others.
0: There is a Star Trek that has a female captain, isn't there? Yeah, Yeah, Voyager.
1: Um, Captain Janeway I didn't particularly watch that one part of the trouble is a lot of those formats they're based on a very old you know sort of male archetype you know the naval exploratory ship Um, so all you're doing is slightly playing with the unexpectedness of having a different yeah. You know, having a woman rather than a man in charge. I don't know. I'm not knocking them in any way because I particularly I enjoyed The Next Generation. But I noticed Diana Troy was, you know, the empathetic counsellor, which if that wasn't reinforcing gender stereotypes, I don't know what was. So yeah. She she gets to do a lot more later on. And Marina Sertis is such a brilliant, intense and thoughtful actress that she does get to command things eventually, but oh my God, again, the battle between the fantasy world of, within the show and the real world in which sexism and unconscious biases and racism and, you know, all those attitudes are still prevalent. You know, I mean, it's true. You know, Why did Geordie have to be black? It was like, you know, there's always, you know, the two, the two black characters in Star Trek, the next generation, one of them is Worf. He's made into a Klingon. So he's under makeup. And the other is um, Geordie. who has the visors. You can't see half his face. I, well, that was not insignificant
0: yeah and, and actually there is there is a third but she's not in it all the time is there because Who- whoopi goldberg's in it whoopi well, goldberg came in, in later
1: a, she's in a listening
0: she... role isn't she she's a, a counselor yeah but she's different
1: of... because she's an old wise woman and you know she's she lived she lived a long life but she didn't come until a couple of series in um so i would argue she she then starts to potentially change things but you know the other example i'll give you is when they rebooted you know, when they brought back the star wars prequel trilogy you have that amazing actress, Lupita Younger, mm. and you turn her into an animated little old lady. She's one of the most beautiful, yeah. charismatic actresses in the world. And again, I have to ask, would they have done that to Kira Knightley? I don't think so.
0: Yeah, I think you almost certainly are right.
1: That's about the biases of the real world.
0: Yeah. Oh, oh, um, oh absolutely. Yeah. Like you say, this... Um... That, that People don't find it hard to imagine that you could go off into, you know, into space and or whatever it is that's happening in science fiction. But they struggle to imagine that there is a place where, you know, women and people of colour could be equal. It's yeah. It, but mm-hmm. that's the same argument with with Game of Thrones, where. People used to repeatedly say, "Oh, the women are treated like that because it's historically
1: accurate." You're
0: yeah. <laughs> like, it's, "It's a fantasy. It's not. It's not a historical drama. Know, Where does I this know. idea come from?"
1: I have to say, right now, I am one of the few people on the planet who has never watched Game of Thrones. I yeah. haven't got time. I'd rather read a book. I have to say, I like. Sorry, I know you could read the Game of Thrones books. Yeah, but I'm, I've struggled beyond the Hobbit. I never got through Lord of the Rings either.
0: I like Game of Thrones. But I can see that it's really, really problematic in parts. I would say. But we're now veering
1: off off science fiction. We are definitely. Fantasy, but I did watch.
0: Not? I did watch Lord of the Rings, the 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 first one of the Amazon, uh, yeah. and I have to say it didn't grasp me. But again, I did see a lot of, I would say, younger female response to the fact that there was yeah. active female characters in it.
1: Yeah, and I think we know we should we should allow people last stuff to appeal to different generations. Yeah. So, Although, again, it's interesting to see, does this count as science fiction? So James Bond films, films, mm. as opposed to the, the the books, you know, they straddle science fiction fantasy, don't they? In some cases, you have some nonsense like an invisible car. I was interviewing Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson ahead of the 50th anniversary. Yeah. It's going to run on Front Row in October. And we were talking about how people's view of James Bond has changed. And at the time of the first doctor no film came out a lot of film critics at the time thought what is this adolescent nonsense this is stupid and to some extent i can i can see it through their eyes where you know, ludicrous villains it's quite cartoonish yeah and of course it was easily parodied and has been to this day and yet you get to 2012 where the queen you know volunteers to take part in that sketch yeah with Daniel Craig I mean he becomes the national treasure because of those films so you know it was regarded as childish then and then people grow up and they they claim it as something I mean they're not saying that it's you know it's not you know it's not Jean-Luc Godard is it but um, but it's more than just adolescent I think for many people now and I think the same will happen with Game of Thrones and things Mm. where when that generation of grown up with it are older I think they will they will mark a place for it as significant culture
0: yeah agreed so revisiting the, sort of the conversation we had at the start about, you know, what children's anxieties are, you know, about the environment. Yep. Science fiction often does reflect the hopes and fears of the age and ask some big moral questions generally. So given that and the current state of the world, where do you think sci-fi might be going next?
1: So That's really interesting. Um, I was interviewing the winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award for science fiction last year, and it was a book that was sort of about climate change, and it was also about a virus. By amazing coincidence, it was a virus that makes people hear animals speaking to them and communicate with them. It was quite terrifying. It was set in Australia, and I think there's something about an eco fiction, yeah, which seems relevant. However, one of the issues about science fiction is if it's too close to what's going on, I don't know if it 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 still counts as science fiction or it just becomes depressing (laughs) fiction. You know, I don't know, because we read all those books about nuclear apocalypse and stuff and, and watched those films in the 80s. I mean, yeah. Threads was science fiction, wasn't it? Yeah. The um the TV oh, drama God. that terrified people in the um, 1984-ish. So I think of eco themes as being important. And, you know, you mentioned very early on the idea of optimism as Ooh. opposed to just dystopia. Kim Stanley Robinson writes novels that are all about finding solutions and positive ways forward. He wrote a book, I think, called was it called 2016 it was about new york in the age of really significant storms caused by climate change and how the world had to adapt and stuff and i remember margaret atwood saying you know i'm sorry i just don't buy it you know those buildings wouldn't be able to stand and you couldn't do this Mm -hmm. all the things that he suggests the ways in which humans would find creative ways to to deal with the challenge of rising sea levels and things but i do think there's a place for it you know and if people i mean what do people want to read And maybe we'll get more escape into, you know, historical, quasi-historical fantasy fiction like, you know, Game of Thrones. I Mm. don't know. But I think there's a lot of interesting women in particular writing fiction. And I think, you know, think about the impact of The the Handmaid's Tale. When that came out in 1985, there were critics saying, well, none of this could happen. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. And not only is it literally happening in America Mm. right now, (laughs) but everything in that book had happened somewhere in the world. Everything yeah. in that book had happened already. So I think Margaret Atwood is really interesting. And, and maybe we should look at what's being written now, that's successful, and then imagine in 20 years, especially if it seems irrelevant. She wrote the Oryx and Crate trilogy starting, in, I think, 2001 or two, And it's all about companies like Google taking over the world, about an increasingly divided society, about climate change, about the rise of extreme porn sex trafficking culture they're all tied up but she actually anticipated that yeah. 20 years ago how did she do that
0: well see this is why i love dystopia because we did a whole series where we, where i made everyone watch loads of dystopias um dystopian films and there's probably a word dystopias dystopia i don't know but we um
1: we the what... pl- plural of dystopia yeah. is dystopia is it? It's, um, yeah i think it's um dare i say it, i think it's forced declension <clears throat> neutral i know my latin it's wow,
0: like temp- I knew I'd gone to the right woman when I did this interview. No, I was thinking,
1: Templum, Templum, Templar, Templar. But There's sorry. so many of
0: them that you can watch, and there are, but so many of them have an element that I think is spot on. Like if you look at Rollerball, it's about the rise of massive, massive corporations. Yeah. If you look at Soylent Grain, it's the question of. Do we ask enough questions about where our food is coming from? That Even if th- th- these questions, these sort of moral questions are wrapped in this ridiculous film from the 1950s, there's usually something, a nugget of something in there that you can see reflected now. And I think they're incredible.
1: Yeah. Can I just say, I think the plural of a t- utopia is utopii. I think it's it's a female noun like An
0: But that would be right, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's all
0: right. I was also going to say I'm also a massive fan of the new Planet of the Apes films, I think.
1: Oh, that's interesting because, you see, I don't, I, I think they're, you know, they're well-made, but I prefer the originals.
0: I mean, I like the originals. I have to say I do like the originals. It took me a long time to get the originals. I was probably in my 20s and a friend said to me, you know, what you're looking at is the terrible hair and makeup, or, or, which wasn't terrible at the time. But you no, know, Well, it...
1: actually, the monkey masks are really good at the time.
0: But he said you're not looking at what they're really about, and I, yeah. it was like it was like a revelation to me. and I was suddenly yeah. really into Planet. Well, of
1: Escape is about celebrity culture, and Conquest is about student uprisings and the civil rights movement yeah. being put down by an authoritarian state. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you look at Black Lives Matter, and you've seen it all in Conquest: The Planet of the Apes already.
0: Yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, I think I think they're brilliant, and and what I like about the new ones, I mean, outside for the fact that the performances are just incredible. Because that is, that is science in action, isn't it? That's When mm-hmm. they were making those masks, could they ever have known that by putting a load of things on Andy Serkis that, that they would be able to create an actual you know, ape from
1: Do you not know think him? it weird that they go to all that effort to make them real and ape-like and they're completely naked and they've got no genitalia? Um, <laughs> <in the new laughs> severe,
0: I've never put that much thought into it. I just it. think and if you're going go your to go for realism, you either else.
1: go for realism or you, you, you have to make them wear clothes. Yeah. Just, I'm just pointing out. That's the thing. And again, with science fiction, you know, how, how how consistent does the world need to be? How, you know, it needs to be consistent within its own reality, doesn't mm. it? We haven't talked about the Hunger Games. No, I mean, that, what was interesting about that was, you know, that was aimed at very young people and it was incredibly violent. I mean, I didn't read the books, but the books I gather really nasty and the, the film, you know, the whole idea of children hunting each other down with knives mm. and someone dies being eaten by a pack of mad dogs and things. It, it's horrific. And it seems straight out of the science fiction, extreme science fiction of the um, the sixties and early seventies. I'm really interested that there was a whole spate of it. The Maze Runner, a lot of them were being turned into films, which seemed to be the very the similar ideas. And yet, this was for a generation who hadn't grown up with the idea of nuclear holocaust. So, yeah, I, I was I was puzzled where that came from. And it um, it does seem to have to some extent not disappeared, but it's not it's not as prominent as it was, is it? Well, I think
0: although the authors says that she, she'd she never see Battle Royale, I can't look at The Hunger Games and not see a bit of Battle Royale, which is the Japanese film about children who are sent to an island to kill each other, which is actually a, a sort of a pastiche or a satire... A a satire of is uh, well, it also a of Japanese television programs? You know those extreme mm. reality TV programs.
1: I mean, Logan's Run in its own way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, although they yeah. weren't fighting each other, it was the idea of of a spectacle of entertainment of death in which there was theoretical chance of surviving and uh, opium for the masses. Yeah. I mean, there's an episode of um, classic Star Trek called Bread and Circuses where they land on a planet which is a 20th century Roman Empire. It's the world where the Roman Empire never fell. It's a parallel Earth, and they televised their gladiatorial combats.
0: Wow. Oh, I should I should seek that one out because I absolutely loved when I saw it. I was quite young when the first time I saw it, The Running Man. Um,
1: it's the, such a great film. It is, isn't yeah. it? Even
0: though it's also quite a bad film at the same time, it is a really great film because... Yeah,
1: directed by Paul Michael Glazer. And, um, of course, the love interest in it is a Latina woman. Is yeah. Valeria yeah. Golino.
0: Oh, I can't remember what she's called. You're probably it right.
1: Um, oh, can I just say Total Recall? There are a couple of really yeah. good Schwarzenegger... Um, science fiction films which deal with kind of corporate power and strong women and interesting things like that
0: yeah Um, I also like the minor um the uh Philip K Dick stuff minority report I think is a I saw that was on Maria Conchita Samira can I ask you a little bit about the exhibition that's coming up at the science museum because I know you're involved in some way
1: because I'm actually really looking forward to seeing it because I was on the advisory board and there were quite a lot of scientists and people from all over the world and so The first thing I'll say is, unlike so many of the exhibitions of science fiction of the past, it really is trying not to be very Eurocentric and chronological, you know, starts with H.G. Wells and ends with Star Wars kind of thing. And it's not to knock those kind of versions of the past, but we've had enough of them. So I think there's a genuine attempt to be properly international. There's going to be Afrofuturism, um, you know, Asian, South American fantasy, science fiction elements to it. And I think it's, it's focused on themes that mesh with obviously it's a science museum exhibition so around technology and transport and I think the body you know ideas of you know we think about AI and modifications of the body Mm. all these things so and and they've obviously got props and costumes and significant ones so that'll be part of what be interesting to see what they've got and I think there's going to be um I mean nowadays people are so used to having the possibilities of a semi immersive experience. So I think this isn't just going to be you walk into a gallery and it's a walkthrough. I think it's more of a you will be you will feel you're being transported through a bit more of an adventure. Right. So, you know, I think it should be fun. And I'm old enough to remember when the Science Museum did the Science Star Trek exhibition oh, back really? in the early nineties and they they very smartly advertised for um volunteer guides and hundreds of people queued up to the Science Museum to volunteer themselves to be guides for this exhibition.
0: Yeah, that's clearly so, you know, isn't it.
1: It's, it's it's a lovely thing to kind of capture the passion that there is for science yeah. fiction, but to uh, harness it to something about the reality of science because the two work alongside each other. You know, and a lot of, I mean, um, Bill Trumbull, who did this very very famous Stargate special effects for 2001 that sort of stargate sequence went on to make brainstorm which is being screened at wise green weekend in bradford the Widescreen weekend film festival and the technology he used there he wanted to make cinema you know more genuinely immersive and he he developed a, a format called show scan which um there's news footage of it on youtube if you go and look it up which was going to be you know you're in a seat that moves and and you will Probably wear special glasses, so I like virtual reality. And your engagement in the screen is going to be much more immersive. And in the end, that technology—I mean, it was expensive, and studios didn't want to invest in it, so it became—it did never Mm. quite happen. But if you ever went on the Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios, which was very famous for the experience of being in the ride, that was his technology. Oh wow! So he was a filmmaker. He was also an engineer by training. He died only, I think, this year or last year. And his father had worked on The Wizard of Oz. So he he had filmmaking and science tied up in his jeans. And Brainstorm is a film he directed. And it's a bit of a, a masterpiece about the idea of how you could in, immerse yourself in other people's memories and the dilemma. It, it became notorious for the film that Natalie Wood died during the making of. So they had to finish it without her. But he also made Silent Running, which, of course, is an early eco thriller.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you a know, lovely man. You, say, you saying about the body, I've just thought of something else that's science fiction that I absolutely loved, which is Canadian drama, comedy. It sort of sat between the two. Orphan Black, which was about clones.
1: And oh, the, that sounds interesting. The
0: most. Oh, you should watch it because the most incredible thing it. is it's written by two men who accidentally wrote something feminist because it's about who owns <laughs> your body when you are a clone. And therefore, they were accidentally asking all of these questions about women's bodies without realising yeah. that they were writing something super feminist. It, it's, it's genuinely really, really interesting uh, drama. And Tatiana Maslani plays about 10 different characters in it and she's absolutely cracking. Um, I thought
1: you said clothes.
0: Oh, clothes. Clones, clones, clones
1: yes. yes. See, that's a theme that probably will come back. Mm. Um, you know, people more anxious about the idea of... 3D printing and stuff. Although I I think it's interesting that clones have never really obsessed us that much. Although I liked the Jordan Peele film Us.
0: Yes. You know, with
1: the doppelgangers. That one creeped me out brilliantly. Yeah, I actually,
0: like I say, I'm not as much as scared of things as I was when I was younger, but that one did really creep me out as well. And again, Lupita Nyong'o, what
1: an actress, what performance.
0: Absolutely terrific. And of course, um, a really great book. Um the film wasn't so great but uh, the really great book about clones is uh, Never Let Me Go um which yeah, is set in yeah set in the 70s but still science fiction because it's it's about clones. Samira this has been excellent. I've had a lovely chat with you. Um is there anything coming up that you're doing that you could uh, that you, you want to plug. Have you got any shows Ooh, coming up?
1: We have things. Well, my front rows are always, I think, interesting. It's always we've always got interesting stuff coming up. And there's I always have lots of ideas out there, but I'm still waiting to see some of them yeah. come off. I think there's one thing I want I would leave everyone with is if you haven't read Octavia E. Butler, go and read the Parable of the Sower. And the other book I'd recommend is Kindred, which is a book she wrote in the early 70s about an African-American woman who finds herself transported back through time to slavery. And mm. it's a very powerful feminist book it's a very disturbing book she's married to a white man in the present and in the past obviously she's owned by a white man she's pulled back through time without control over it
0: yeah
1: um so it's a bit like um 12 monkeys you know bruce willis Mm, character she's sort of she's somehow not in control of her own um travel and and it It's a really amazing book about slavery and its legacy in modern America.
0: Well, thank you for that tip. I'm going to have to buy that now. And I've already got tons of books to read already.
1: Standard issue for all women.